We are going to uh, 1 Samuel 17, starting in verse 22. I'm going to read a very familiar story. And we're going to bounce around a little bit right in 17 there, and it is up. But we are in the English Standard Version. This is what God says through Samuel. It says, uh, David left the the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words he had spoken as before. And David heard him. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him. And we're much afraid. Skipping down to verse 40. Then he took, speaking of David, his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. Now down to 48. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him, cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. They fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell in the way to Shareim, as far as Gath and Ekron, and the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. I want to talk to you for a little while today about the butterfly effect. The butterfly effect. Um, last week I recommended a book to you. It's called The Traveler's Gift by Andy Andrews. Um, one of the stories in The Traveler's Gift, one of the episodes, the chapters, is when David Ponder meets Joshua Chamberlain. If you're like me, I didn't know who Joshua Chamberlain was before I read the book. And it takes place at the Battle of Gettysburg, where Chamberlain was lieutenant. But before that ever came to be, obviously Joshua Chamberlain grew up into being a man. He was born in, in Brewer, Maine in 1828, the eldest of five children. Uh, he was shy as a child and even had a stammer. He stuttered, something that he never really overcame. Even as later he becomes the, the governor of Maine, he always had a, a very unusual pacing to his speech because he was trying to cover his his limitation in language. As a young man, he worked in a brickyard and in the timber industry before taking a teaching job. And then this young man with the speech impediment became a student. 
uh, college student where he learned the ancient uh, classics of Latin and Greek and became a professor of rhetoric, graduating in 1852. In 1855, he went to Bangor Theological Seminary, but instead of taking a pastor position, he became a teacher, went back and took a teaching job where he was teaching, again, languages. But then something happened. The Civil War broke out, and it weighed heavily on Joshua Chamberlain. He's quoted as saying that that wars had been fought historically over money or riches or land or women. But the Civil War was different because for the first time in history, man was fighting for the freedom of another man. It was the first time in his understanding that the war was just. The cause was right. And because of that, he wanted to serve his country. He offers his services to the governor of Maine who appoints him the lieutenant colonel of the newly formed 20th Maine Regiment. And this is what leads to being July 2nd, 1863, in the Battle of Gettysburg. This professor of rhetoric, a school teacher, not a trained soldier, this man is taken by Colonel Vincent, and he's set with his men of the 20th Maine at the end of the line and leave him with these words, whatever you do, You can't let them through here. Joshua, whatever you do, they can't get through here. Because if the Confederate army overran them, they would be able to get behind the forces of the north. And they would have the higher ground. And those 80,000 men of the north's army would be caught between the front lines of the attacking rebels From below, and then the force coming from the top, they would have no protection, and the Confederates would win. As anyone who is in here as a a history student would know, that everybody knew that the Battle of Gettysburg was the linchpin. It was the turning point, the hinge moment in the war. They understood Both sides understood that that to win or to lose literally would determine the outcome of the battle. And because of this, Chamberlain knew that he could not retreat. There's multiple charges that happened that day. The first at at 2.30 pushes them back. Then there's a second and a third. They continue to repel the forces. The fourth charge that happened... Joshua Chamberlain actually takes a bullet and it hits directly on his belt buckle and he keeps fighting. He started the morning with 300 men and by the fourth charge was down to 80. He gave the order to his men. He says, check the ammunition. We're out. Check the ammunition of the dead. We're still out. As things were getting ready and they're hearing the rebel yell from, from the, the, the rebel forces down below them. 
Joshua's brother cries out to him and says, Joshua, give an order. Joshua Chamberlain reported that in his mind he thought, we can't retreat, but we can't stay here either. I am forced to either act or not. I have got to choose to act. Joshua Chamberlain, Lieutenant Colonel of the 20th Maine, simply stood up and said, We're out of ammunition, fixed bayonets. We are going to prepare to execute a great white wheel. A great right wheel is an all out charge. As the rebels began to charge up the hill for the fifth charge, Chamberlain stepped up on a rock and yelled to his men, Charge! 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 They ran down the hill, unarmed, with nothing but their bayonets to protect them. But the shot Confederate soldiers stopped in their tracks and ran in retreat. And in less than 10 minutes, Chamberlain had the blade of his sword on the collarbone of the rebel commander. And he said to him, sir, you are my prisoner. And he said, yes, sir, I am. And he handed over a loaded pistol to an unarmed man. All because he chose to act. This is such an amazing event. 30 years later, Joshua Chamberlain was awarded the Medal of Honor, and I love this, for conspicuous gallantry in battle. People we remember in history, the people we remember in Scripture are the people the men and women who stepped out of the confines of the comfortable and acted boldly, hear me, in the face of their fears. Not because there weren't fears, but in the face of their fears. I want to say this today, and this is the third installment of Tips for the Journey. You can literally change the world if you choose to act in the face of your fears. Everything you do, and this is something we don't understand, everything you do affects everybody forever. The butterfly effect proves this. Benjamin Franklin said this, he said, uh, if you will not be soon forgotten as soon as you are dead, Either write something worth reading or do something worth writing. What does God want you to do? What does God want you to do? I'm humbled, honestly, by Anthony and Anna today because I look at what they're doing. I look at how they've given up the comfortable and stepped out to the edge for the one purpose of seeing just somebody reached 
for the gospel. And I look at just so many people and I look across this room and I look even in the mirror and I go, God has created us with purpose. And because of that, God always, hear me, God always wants us to act. Always. He always wants us to act. The only time, hear me on this, the only time we ever see God just kind of stalling with somebody is when the children of Israel are in the wilderness for 40 years. And it's because they chose not to act that God sends them to Sinai and they park there for 40 years, waiting for the last of the men to die so that he can bring them into the promise he had for them 40 years earlier. The only time that God is ever going to stop from moving us forward is just waiting for something in us to die so he can move us forward. God is a God of action. And God has actions for us today. But we need to determine that we are going to be people of action. We've got to determine that we're not going to be satisfied with just simply going through the motions of our faith or or the expressions of our Christianity, that we would put ourselves in a place that God would begin to push us to the edge of the experience with him. That we would begin to see God do things that are impossible. But he will only do it when we allow him to move us. Most of us live in one of two states. We either live comfortably in our lives. That's one. The other is that, and this is... This is this is uh, maybe closer to where we want to be, but not there. We live waiting for God to do something. I've had friends, people I've known, that are like, well, I'm just waiting on the Lord to tell me what to do. But see, in either case, God is waiting on us to move so that he can move with us, that he can produce his results through us. There is something that has been stirring in me just for a while. And I've got to confess to you that it, I've always believed this, but it's getting to where it's, it's almost becoming pathological. <laughs> I need prayer. I believe that we have got to do something. It's just time for us to act. And I feel like so many times... We are waiting on God to break out. We're waiting on God to do something. And God is just waiting on us. It's impossible, folks, to steer a parked car. I'd rather you in reverse than going than parked. Because we can steer in reverse. But if you're parked, we can't do anything. In order for God to take you to where you belong, to fulfill the place that he created you for, for you to step into the destiny that he made you for, you have got to move. 
You've got to determine that you are going to act, even if you don't understand maybe what or why. You've got to step out. David is one of my favorite characters in Scripture. He's, he's one of my most beloved just people of Scripture. I, the, the, the polarity of David is incredible. He's a man after God's own heart who commits adultery and knocks off the husband. I mean, how does that happen? He's, he's, he's the breadth and extent of, of, of humanity. The, all the beauty and all the great things and all the amazing things that we can be in. All the depth and the darkness and the ugliness that we can be. He's all of that wrapped up in this one man who became king. See, but... The one thing, regardless of, of David's faults or his greatness, the one thing that God always used David for, God used David because David acted. David moved. David wasn't satisfied in just simply having an anointing to be king. He wasn't even king when he goes out and faiths Goliath. David moved. In fact, the only time that David doesn't move is the time he gets in trouble. It says in the, in the spring, when it was time for kings to go out to war, David stayed and rested at his palace. And next thing we find him up on top of the roof and he sees Bathsheba and he falls into sin. It was when he chose not to act is when the problems rose. So God took the shepherd... Poet, musician, the youngest of eight brothers. Young man, probably only about 15 years old. God takes him and begins to stir something in him. See, he's only there. If you don't know the story, David only shows up to face Goliath, not because he's there to fight. He's there to bring supplies for his brothers. That's it. He's there to bring corn and bread and cheese. But he hears this, this Goliath getting rowdy, talking down about God. And all of a sudden, something in him rose up. The anointing that he had to be king suddenly begins to break out in this 15-year-old, he's not even going to be king for another 20 years. But all of a sudden, that call, that thing that's inside of him begins to stir. And he steps out to do battle with someone who's twice his height. Someone he can't beat. But see... He knew who was with him. There's going to be something here, folks. God wants to stir up what's in you. God wants to take you and bring you into the place that you begin to activate, get active and move in what you're feeling. 
We were talking this morning about in small groups, David, David mentioned talking about filters and filters and filters and how, how we think about something to do something and, and we, oh, we can't do that because of this and we can't do that because of this and we put up all these barriers in front of us and sometimes you've got to realize that when you're getting stirred up, that's God calling up what you really are inside of you. That's God bringing to the surface who you really are supposed to be, how you're really supposed to act, how you're supposed to address that situation. Now, that doesn't mean ugly. That doesn't mean, you know, I've got relatives who just say what they think, and they're not real popular. How many of you all know that if you said everything you thought, nobody would like you anymore? (laughs) Yes. Even you sanctified holy folks. Yeah, if you said everything you thought, it'd be like, hey, don't talk to that person. They're going to, you know, I don't know what you were thinking today, Pastor David. You know, your hair is a little crazy. You need a new hairstyle. Thank you. (laughs) Well, there is that, brother. Thank you. I feel better already. See, but... You've got to understand that sometimes God is trying to take what's inside you and bring it up. He's got dreams. He's got desires for you. He's got things that that are inside you that he needs to bring out. And and there's times in your life that, that you're going to feel just stirring. And sometimes they pop out as dreams. And sometimes they pop out as actions. But even if they start as dreams, they've got to produce actions. We cannot be content to just simply allow for our dreams to continue without putting actions to them. I remember when the Lord told me I had to go back to college and get my degree. I didn't want to. I was like, I don't want to. But he told me to. And so I did. And it was hard to put my name on the application knowing I was going to spend money I didn't have, spend time I didn't have, you know, do all the stuff, work my tail off to, to get a piece of paper. When I had already traveled, the, you know, not like extensively, I'd traveled around and preached. I'd preached at that point in six different nations and three different continents. God had filled thousands of people with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. God had healed hundreds and hundreds of people miraculously. I'd already seen all that stuff. I didn't have a piece of paper. I'm like, are you sure? Go to school. We've got to, though, begin to see that there's, t- there's dreams tied to God's plan. And then if we can just begin to activate, we can begin to act to fulfill those things. There is a responsibility on our side. There is something that God, God, we co-labor with God. That means I've got to work with him. He's not going to just show up and carry me, you know, levitate me over to the next place I've got to go speak. If he does that, I'll be really excited. I mean, that'd be cool. But usually I got to walk. And if I do any levitating, it's in a plane, you know? But see, when we go and do what we're supposed to do, when we choose to act, then he can act with us. 
And if he will act with us, then we will win victories. What do you dream of doing for God? Do you dream of doing something for him where he could use you somehow to build his kingdom? See, sometimes we think it's our dreams. It's just a dumb dream. It's just my dream. It's just what I thought I wanted to do or what I thought my life was going to be. And maybe it is just your dream. Or maybe it really is God's. Remember Joseph? Joseph has a dream. And then he has another dream. And it just looks like he's just this cocky kid who just has visions and dreams of as- and aspirations of ruling over his brothers. But what he didn't know and what nobody knew is that it was God's dream to save a nation. What dreams do you have right now that God wants to begin to elevate? That, that is just, you're seeing just this little snapshot But God sees a panoramic view that is going to bring his kingdom into places it would never reach without you. What are your dreams? And what would you do with your life today if you knew God would stand behind you and do it? Because he wants to stand with you. I've I've found that even in my failures, even when I stepped out in faith and it looks like I failed on the outside, God was working. And God took it and used it and grew the kingdom by it. See, God will stand with you, but you've got to choose to act. And what is going to hold you back from that? Usually the answer is pretty simple. (laughs) just fear. I want to say, folks, fear is real. If you're, not, if you're not fearful of something, well, you're lying. And fear, hear me, is good sometimes. It's good to be afraid, you know, if you're facing a lion, for instance. Or when you're playing, you know, I, I have a deep reverence for guns. <laughs> you guys are, you know, you grew up with them, you know, they were part of like your, your, uh, when they did the, uh, when your mama had the um, baby shower. <laughs> you know, part of, part of the early care package was, you know, 12 gauge. You guys grew up with it. When I deal with a gun, it's like, this can kill somebody. Fear is not always a bad thing. Keeps us safe. Protects us. And things that matter. But I want you to hear me real carefully on this right now. Today's culture in the United States has become a culture of fear. I think it started out with like my, my parents and the generations that have followed. There's, there was such a desire to protect the kids, you know. I remember being dressed up for bike riding like it was a contact sport. Helmets and elbow pads and knee pads and, you know, full body armor, just about. Uh, it's like, you know, for winter, for winter, it was like that kid in the Christmas story, you know. I can't put my arms down. The kid is immobilized, literally. The child is immobilized by fear. But it's not his fear, it's his mama's. 
And we're like that. We're like that in this culture. We've gotten to where safety is most important. Scripture says this, beware when they say peace and safety. Because then sudden destruction is at hand. It's when we become so fearful that we don't act, that we can be taken to places we would never go. Fear debilitates. It causes us to to be so cautious that we choose not to move. It immobilizes us. It makes us slaves to it. I have a friend. He's a pastor of a very large church. We were talking on the phone about a year and a half ago. We were sitting there on the phone, and he's talking about some things. He's going, David, you know, I'm facing this, and I'm facing this, and I really want to do this. I want to do this, but I feel like I can't because I've got this big church, and we're very secure here, and we got all this stuff. And I said to my friend, I said, do not let your fears dictate your direction, or they will determine your destination. What are you allowing your fear to control you on? Where is your security more important than the sovereign will of God? Because God wants you to act. And God is waiting for you to act. Because on the other side of you acting is a move of God. What if David would have allowed for fears to control him? Would he have ever been king of Israel? I don't know. I, I, don't, I, I don't think so. Would we have ever known his name? But it's because he overcame his fears that he inspired, hear me on this, he inspired bravery in an entire army. When you read 1 Samuel 17, the second half of, of verse 51, it says this, When the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they, they fled, they ran. And the men of Israel, the men who had been sitting there for 40 days, hiding behind rocks, fearful to go out and engage the giant, those same men, it says, rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath to the gates of Ekron. What is God, what is God waiting for you to do to inspire a whole people to rise up with you? Who is ready to stand up and change somebody's destiny because you chose to face your fear? Don't let your fears dictate your direction or they will determine your destination. Literally, you can choose to act and it will change everybody's life because everything you do affects everybody else forever. Why do I say that? And I'm, I am wrapping up, folks. Stick with me just for a few minutes. Because the butterfly effect is real. In 1963, a man named Lorenz published a the- theoretical paper that uh, <laughs> was highly criticized. He called it deterministic, deterministic non-periodic flow. And basically, he said that that the beating of the wings of a butterfly in Africa 
could start a chain reaction, just a just a slight, slight fluttering, a slight change in airflow from a butterfly in Africa could literally start a wind that would gain momentum, come across the Atlantic, and produce a hurricane. And, and this was very, very, as you can understand, very, very criticized. But it, it stirred something. They started to do studies, and, and what they actually found out is that it's true. That just the slight change in air current produced by a butterfly halfway around the world could produce a cataclysmic weather event here in the United States. And it works not just with people, or not just with weather, but with people also. The author, Andy Andrews, told this funny story. He was... He was uh, it was April 2nd, 2004, and he's listening to the ABC News with Peter Jennings, and, and they have the person of the week. Remember when they used to do the person of the week? And it says, the person of the week this week is Norman Borlaug, and he is credited with saving up to two billion people's lives. And Andy Andrews says he ran to the television, he's watching and listening to, to what's being said here, and, and Norman Borlaug had hydrolyzed corn and wheat so they could grow in arid conditions. And because of that, he literally won the Nobel Prize for his work in 1970 and had fed and, and cared for so many people through his work that 2 billion people 20 years ago at that time owed their lives to Norman Borlaug. And so they gave him person of the week. And Andy Andrews said this. He said, I was irritated. He said, because Norman Borlaug, he shouldn't have won it. Really, it should have been Henry Wallace. See, Henry Wallace was the vice president, the first vice president under Roosevelt. And when he was, when he was there as vice president, he took all of his, his experience as the former head of the Secretary of Agriculture, and he took all of that, and he started a station in Mexico devoted to the study of developing hydrolyzed corn and wheat that could grow in arid conditions. And he, he just happened to hire a brilliant young scientist named Norman Borlaug. So really, Henry Wallace should have been person of the week. Well, that is, unless... Maybe it was the African-American student at Iowa State University. See, there was, there was a young African-American student named George Washington Carver who was a student at Iowa State back around the turn of the 19th, 1900s. He did incredible work. So many of us today have experienced that with peanut butter, <laughs> But he also did victory gardens, which fed the United States during World War II. He, he worked on sweet potatoes and did all these inventions that really optimized the use of these products. And, and, and as he was going around doing all these discoveries and doing all this academic work, he happened to have this little kid who hang around the lab. Six-year-old little boy was the son of one of his professors. And 
And he influenced that little boy and would take him around and show him plants and would talk about what he was doing with them and how God had made them and how it was that they could be used to help people and inspired that little kid. Made that boy begin to dream of what plants could do for humanity. And that six-year-old boy was Henry Wallace. So really, George Washington Carver should be person of the week. Unless it was the Missouri farmer Moses. Moses was from Diamond, Missouri, and it was January 1864. And Quantrill's raiders, back in the height, just after the Civil War had ended, would go around and rampage through the area and kill people. And, and they ran through Moses' farm, and they grabbed a young black woman, Named Mary. Mary happened to be Moses' wife's best friend. They grabbed Mary and her little boy and carried her off. And Mary was desperate, or excuse me, Susan was desperate and begged her husband to do something. And so he, he sends out messengers all across the area and says, I need a meeting with Quantrill's raiders. Ten days later, a meeting is set. He took his last horse, rode it four hours north to Kansas. As he got off his horse, he gave it to one of Conchell's raiders. He had traded it for what was thrown to him in a feed bag. And out of that bag, he pulled out an almost dead baby boy. And he took that boy and shoved him into his shirt and covered him up. And he walked back, all the way back to his farm in Missouri, promising that boy that he'd raise him as his own, that he'd give him his name, that he'd make sure he was educated, that he'd be able to give honor to his mother. And that little boy was George Washington Carver. The humble farmer with no horse, saved two billion people. What does God want to do with you? What does God want to bring through your life? God can use you to change the world. I'm going to finish with this last little bit because you need to know how this all ties together. Joshua Chamberlain, beginning of the story. Because of what he did, the North won the Battle of Gettysburg. Historians tell us that had the South won the Civil War, the South would have broken up into separate nation states, kind of like what the European Union is today. And so you fast forward a hundred years, Hitler rises in Europe and Japan and Asia. The world is at war. The United States comes in a little late. But we begin to fight the war on two fronts. The Pacific and the European front. 
Historians tell us that the only nation in the world that was strong enough to be able to handle a war on two fronts like that was the United States. We were the only ones that had the wealth in money and resources and people to be able to fight that war. And because of that, the Allies defeated Hitler and Japan. See, but what's crazy is that if the United States didn't exist, there would have been no nation strong enough to handle the Hitler-Japan alliance. And we would have lost that war. Because of one man choosing to act, we live in freedom today. Who is God waiting to set free through you? What has God got inside you that needs to be loosed through action? Because there's a, who knows? There may be two billion people or maybe a whole world that just because you chose to act, find out that there's a Savior who loves them and who will set them free. I don't know who's in this room. I don't know who's in this room, but I do know this. Joshua Chamberlain didn't know who he was. Moses Carver didn't know who he was. But those two men changed the world. It's time time. It's time for us to change the world. If you want to become a world changer, I want you to stand. I just want you to raise your hands and the band's going to sing. But you know what? What matters. And you don't have to. You don't have to play. If you need to respond, respond. It is more important that you respond to God in this moment than it is to have some music going on. We can play a CD. But we have got to establish right now from this point forward that we're going to be people of action. That sitting back and waiting in our comfort and just going through this life isn't enough anymore. That we, that I, that I need to be a world changer. If you want, just lift your hands right now. Engage with God. Father, in the name of Jesus, you know who's in this room and you know the gifts and callings of people in this room past our, even our understanding, Lord, we may see the smallest thing. But right now, 
right now across this room. Lord, you see the hearts of people, the hearts of young people and, and old people and everyone in between, people who just, Lord, are deciding right now that we are not going to settle for just going through this life, going through this motions, that we will act, that we will become world changers. Now flap our little wings and let you use us. Use your people, oh God. Use your people. In Jesus' name.